Hello and welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality Podcast. My name is Luke Rans and I'm a PhD student at the KU Leuven. Today is our final episode for this season and we will therefore be looking back and ahead and asking, where do we go from here? For this occasion, I'm joined by Professor Gieselinde Kuipers. She curated this podcast and presented most of its episodes. We're also joined by Dr. Dave O'Brien, who also hosted quite a few episodes. Could you briefly introduce yourselves, please? Yes, so I'm Gieselinde Kuipers. I'm a professor of sociology, a research professor at the KU Leuven, that's in Belgium. So I'm mostly a cultural sociologist working on a range of topics that I usually summarize as frivolous topics and their serious consequences. And one of the things I do is I teach graduate students at KU Leuven and the course I was teaching in this semester is called Culture and Inequality. So that that has become this podcast. Yeah, right. That's the original course this podcast was intended to support. And you, Dave? Yeah, um, I'm Dave O'Brien. I have this awesome title of Chancellor's Fellow in Culture and Creative Industries. Um, Although I've not actually met our Chancellor, who I think is one of the royals, maybe. (laughs) Um, And and that's at the University of Edinburgh uh, in the UK. I do a lot of work on, I'd actually probably call it the sociology of culture rather than cultural sociology. I actually also teach a course called Culture and Inequality, but for history of art students and some fine art students at the the Edinburgh College of Arts, which is um, the kind of bit of the University of Edinburgh that I'm part of. All right, today we will be uh, reflecting on this season of the Culture and Inequality podcast. We look back, we look ahead and ask ourselves the central question, where do we go from here? Where is the study of culture and inequality headed and what are the promises of the podcast in general? Uh, And this podcast in particular for the academic community. I do want to date the podcast a little bit with my surprise question. I'm sorry about that, Dave and Gieslinde. And my surprise question for you both is the same. It's nearly Christmas time. It's the... It's that time of year. And my surprise question would be, what is the um, the best gift Santa could give to reduce inequality in terms of culture? I'm in the Netherlands, and we've just heard that all the, the schools will be closing for five more weeks. So there has been a debate raging uh, everywhere, also in the Dutch sociological community, also with people outside of the community, as to exactly what what this school closing closing will mean for inequality, especially for younger children. Uh, and I think this is because I mean, because education is so so central to all the issues related to culture and inequality. So good access to schooling, I think, would be the first. So if we have revolutionary Santa, that would be. A good thing because I think one of the things that has become very clear in this pandemic, you know, I have a I have a son, so I'm not particularly happy with the school closing, but he'll be fine. I mean, he has two very educated parents, and you know, we've we've dug up our iPad and uh, we have books around, and we'll make sure his reading will be fine and probably possibly even better. I think this is one of the moments where, where cultural inequalities become really, really large. So I remember during the previous lockdown, the first one, which was when the schools were closed for two months, actually. So what we did was was get some Chinese-speaking friends to teach my son Chinese. Uh, and I feel sort of, sort of, I feel a bit embarrassed at saying this, but I think it does highlight how this, these things work. So what do we do? So we ask our Chinese-speaking friends to practice songs with, with the six-year-old. And he was happy and we were happy. But of course, I mean, it shows the, the, the bizarre sort of um, magnifying of, of differences that were already there.
because for some kids, having five missing five weeks of school really is uh, dramatic and will set them back for for ages. And it's partly sort of you know the skills that you that you develop to sort of mm-hmm. actually get access to culture from from reading and being able to uh, do arithmetics to all the sorts of cultural exposure that you get at schools and that ideally should be at least some sort of level or when it comes to inequalities specifically through the cultural capital uh, that that is if anything sort of schools can fix this so if if there would be a christmas present for the world then the christmas present would be apart from maybe an end to the pandemic good education good access to education including the infrastructural things but also you know just schools that have more or less the same uh level of you know teaching and quality i think that would be something that i think any cultural sociologist would identify as absolutely essential uh to given that we probably think that inequalities if they're too much is not a good thing all right clear that's clear all you want for christmas is better access to education and better education uh dave i totally agree and um again you know as with all things the the uk is a really useful example of how an unequal society sort of functions so um at least the initial uh, analysis, a lot of which has come from uh, some colleagues at University College London, um, where they've got a new research centre on sort of uh, education, um, inequality and, and labour markets, social mobility, um, is, you know, it's not just a question of, um, I guess, things like five weeks of school means for some children five weeks without uh, meals because school was providing um, you know, these kind of basic uh, social services um, for people living uh, in poverty, but also the ridiculous levels of difference in terms of levels of support, in terms of um, those families where, you know, maybe it's difficult for parents to take time off work. If they do, they might lose their jobs. They don't have access to Wi-Fi, to technology, some schools have been trying to provide laptops, but you know the take up of this is really uneven. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's precisely um, perfect mini example of just how these inequalities function, both in terms of institutions, access to to capitals, you know, social and, and cultural, but also the importance of um, economic resources as well in terms of decisions about uh, the labour of childcare versus paid labour in insecure employment. Yeah, I think you touched upon uh, this whole theme of how COVID-19 has uh, actually further stimulated inequality and how it ties to culture is something that was always on the background of this podcast, but never really came, uh, was very much explicitly in the foreground. I think it's it's clear from both your answers that uh, an end to the pandemic, but also better support uh, to reduce inequality during the pandemic is also one of your key Christmas. Um, which, uh, all right. I have a, another question for you is uh, continuing. So you both have listened to this podcast series. Uh, you both actually presented most of the podcast series between the two of you. Um, what surprised you most listening to all these episodes with all these wonderful uh, professors, doctors, and other researchers. What? So well, one of the things that 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 really uh, surprised me most, I have to admit, is how how big this became. I had no idea that so many people would listen to this. 
Uh, so I was really pleasantly surprised by that and also pleased to discover that apparently there's demand for things like this. I think the other thing that strikes me most on listening to the podcast and listening again to some is the the, the enthusiasm that so many of the speakers have, that people seem to be so pleased to to be talking about this. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question because I guess maybe the sort of the consensus, um, you know, not that everybody agreed with, with everybody else, but I think um, in, in many academic contexts, we get, um, you know, very sort of obsessed about, you know, quite um, either technical differences um, or, you know, maybe sort of um, theoretical schools of thought or, or particular starting points that mean that often our debates are, are rather than, you know, here is this big issue and it's a big problem. Our debates become, well, you know, our findings go in this particular direction, which suggests something subtly but very importantly different from these uh, other directions or other explanations. And I guess hearing, um, uh, and this is this is the, the thing that might be a bit contradictory, hearing the vast range of different subjects, but still, you know, coming back to these broader, um, I guess, kind of shared themes, you know, all of this, whether we were talking about like bodies, or whether we're talking about, you know, what is a, a social class in um, China, for example, or thinking through uh, questions about like how art is defined in the United States or, or whatever, the consistent kind of pattern of we should be worried about wealth inequalities, we should be thinking about, you know, questions of power and inequality, we should take a, you know, a broad, I guess what British and Americans would call a kind of an intersectional approach to think about class, race, gender, disability together, you know, you shouldn't kind of split these these out. So I guess, yeah, the range of subjects that was covered, um, but also the sense of a kind of shared enterprise. And I mean, it, it would be sort of nice if, um, you know, the academic community might remember this moment next time we're all doing really vicious peer reviews of each other, <laughs> you know, or like responses in journals or whatever, and, and kind of think about much of what we talk about is, is a shared project, actually. Um, well, this segues perfectly to uh, the first uh, substantial part of the, this podcast, uh, and that was the question, where do we go from here in terms of research on culture and inequality? Um, we talked about, in this podcast so far, we talked about... Um, um, cultural consumption and inequality, cultural production inequality, what people actually believe, uh, the cultural beliefs about inequality themselves, bodies, uh, food, how these all tie into inequality. And I was wondering, did we miss something? They just said it was a, that this study of culture and inequality is actually a shared endeavor. Uh, is there things that in this shared endeavor we overlook? And this is a question for both of you, so whoever wants to go first. So I was wondering... Did we miss something? And if so, what? Uh, and is that um, reflective of what we miss in the scholarship more broadly? Or is that just like a result of the selection for this course? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really difficult, um, you know, to, to draw boundaries because, you know, thinking about the podcast, each of them was was an hour, some of them were longer. Um, and, you know, it, it is really impossible to do everything at once. But I guess maybe I've got two things, one of which is, possibly like impossible as a as a podcast which is to do with methods uh, 
and I mean, a, a couple of the discussions did get into methods, but um, I do wonder around methods whether you need a combination of kind of practicing particular things, you know, like whether it's going out and interviewing someone yourself to understand like what, you know, the issues and limitations of an interview are, or, you know, having a go at ethnography. Um, so thinking about um, some of the really brilliant ethnographic discussions around um, those, you know, high-end resorts, um, kind of the lives of the super rich and stuff like this versus cross-national attitudinal surveys of, uh, of people's perceptions of inequality. Like tr trying to get into, uh, I suppose, the, you know, the really detailed discussions of methods uh, is, is tricky even with academic specialists and, and spending an hour. So there's that. And I guess the other thing is, uh, is this big, broad category of culture. Um, and th this is not something we, we can solve, or, or indeed, you know, may maybe um, it's something that um, is worth the trade-off of talking about culture and inequality broadly defined, but then sort of playing down the differences between culinary or food cultures, um, visual arts, the cinema, live music, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do we still capture the differences between our different artistic and, and cultural forms? So because I've I've been also teaching the, the course uh, simultaneously to recording the podcast, I think one thing immediately stood out very clearly, which is that uh, so starting from cultural cultural sociology, uh, inequality tends to be defined primarily as in terms of class. So this meant that the students who were very interested in uh, gender and also race, ethnicity, felt that there was not as much of that in the course that they expected. Uh, and I think that highlighted uh, an even more central problem, which is that we all talk about intersectionality, but they're actually we're actually very bad at, at, at practicing this in a very real way. Uh, so there always tends to be this one dimension of inequality that is foregrounded and then all the others are sort of brought in afterwards. Uh, and depending on your discipline, you start from, so if you're a cultural sociologist and your starting point is likely to be class. So if you're a gender scholar, you start from, and then you sort of add on the others. Uh, and it's surprisingly difficult. And we, the students also did find that you can't really sort of translate immediately the insights about class to insights to about race or about etc. Uh, so this is one of the things that I that yeah that I would like to work on more. But it's actually very difficult. Like the big problems that Dave mentioned, so method is a big problem, and what is culture is a big issue, and then actually what is so how is there a variation in inequality? Uh, is also something that, uh, yeah, that requires more thinking, but also really more integration between uh, different subfields of the social sciences. Yeah, so is that, so I was wondering, is that only like intersectionality between class and race and gender, because those are the other categories that you mentioned, or is this also... No, these, these are the obvious, the obvious ones, but then there is, of course, this age, which is even more absent from uh, from most studies of inequality, age, cohort. So one of the things that, that struck me specifically, of course, is language, uh, because, because language is sort of both within countries, accents, dialects can be sort of really, really very, very central part of inequality, but also globally. I mean, the podcast was in English, 
I think we've had just, uh, well, definitely a minority of native speakers. And that's also, and sometimes it's really, I mean, this the struggle of looking for the right words can be very tangible. And that's also, it's a, it's a disadvantage. And it's like other inequalities. It's an advantage or a disadvantage that you're born with and you really can't change much about it. Uh, so there are probably more, so global position, um, um, position inside or outside the global well, northwest, things like that. I think there, the problem is once you start thinking about inequalities, I mean, it's sort of, it, it never ends, right? So there's more and more and more. I mean, for, for example, I'd add um, things like the interaction um, of disability with both consumption and, mm. and production. And in, in some ways, I mean, it's, it's not a field I know particularly well, but, um, you know, disability arts as a set of kind of practices and practitioners and as a field of study has grown up um, almost, you know, within uh, particular art forms like dance or theatre. Um, there are, you know, studies within uh, contemporary literature. And then there is, uh, I guess, you know, the kind of subfield of sociology around this. But certainly in the creative industries uh, study, and then I'd argue, although you know maybe I've, I've missed a key paper somewhere, but thinking about the study of cultural consumption, there hasn't been that kind of one, you know, sort of canonical field-defining research project or you know paper or, or book as yet, um, and. It's something that, that really sort of needs needs doing and, you know, the, the sort of possibility of um, dialogue with particularly the kind of specific art form expertise, um, I think will be really interesting, which, you know, take us back to um, that really crucial point about, you know, how do we do intersectional analysis that isn't just, you know, we will start with social class and then add things on or, you know, coming out of. Uh, say, the tradition of critical race theory, which I guess tries to do class, race and gender together all at once. But then, you know, will we, would we add on disability to that? So, yeah, it's difficult. So there's actually both, uh, you both have uh, answers that are really actually, I, I could say, the seeds of a new research agenda, more or less. So, so this is also, I think, a little bit of a question around biases uh, in the study of culture and inequality. So that's also something that struck me and um, is that, well, there's a tendency to start from one's own viewpoint when studying culture and inequality. And I think language is one of these things, but there's also other things, you know, there's uh, also, of course, the, uh, the habit to study, uh, um, to study middle class and middle class habits of culture and inequality or to study mid upper middle class things. And we've seen some exceptions in this, uh, of course, in this, in this podcast series, but still, I think that's the main, the main bias and, I wonder how we go beyond that uh, as sociologists of culture or cultural sociologists and uh, how you look at that, how both of you look at that and whether, whether there's other things that we that are really biases in our studies. Yeah, so I, so I must say I was really struck by how often it is the readings were about, even though I selected myself, but when myself, but you know, when, once you start thinking about this, how often this really is upper middle class people talking about other upper, about their own experience of how they exclude others, and how how much work 
uh, goes into balancing this. So how much you have to look for, for instance, the paper by Yarnes and Fleming that I that we discussed in the in the uh, episode on cultural beliefs on inequality. That actually you have to look quite a bit before you find something that is really takes a different perspective very explicitly. And this, of course, goes back to, so, so we can't have an episode of this podcast without mentioning Bourdieu. So this actually goes back to a distinction where I think many people have said that the way he describes the, the working class is, if, well, is uh, probably not the best part of his work. Uh, probably a bit sentimental and a bit simplistic and definitely with less of a sense of the, the, uh, well, it's definitely with a much, not as much sense of how it works and the contradictions that are in there and the sort of struggles that we see in his discussion of the higher classes. I think actually British cultural studies has been much better at that. But I think the, especially the empirical part of this tradition seems to have dwindled a little bit. There, there, so there used to be, there used to be at least um, a research tradition of really engaging with working class people and their cultural experience in the UK, which is slightly better uh, than the, than the sort of cultural sociology proper track record. Uh, but it definitely is a blind spot. Uh, and the other blind spot is so the one that we highlighted in the in the episode when we had Predrag and Yang, so China and Serbia, which was a sort of strange combination, but it worked surprisingly well because they really both discovered that that their their societies, in a way, the cultural practice of their societies, are probably very much defined by being peripheral and outside of the center, but also that the the problems they encountered in doing research and in using theoretical frameworks also really showed that what happens if you're not part of this sort of perceived center, which is then Western Europe and the US, and that you really, that some of the theories don't really work for you. Uh, so, well, starting, I think, so the the blind spot. So the solution to blind spots one is you know force yourself to go outside of this bubble and really engage with others than the people that you see around and not try not to start from your own experience. I think and the other is just uh, this also comes with more openness. I think in 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 social science and I think many many uh, people from non sort of non-standard countries have had the experience of you know that's very very difficult to publish things when it's not about the US and the UK and you really have to explain why your your country is a relevant case in something and you have to sort of so there is also so it's it's self-perpetuating in the sense that you have to sort of engage with with debates and concepts that you don't really work and then once you've done that, you've also have to show that your case somehow speaks to these wider sorts of debates, and that goes back to the the language issue that we that we spoke. So every sort of step that you get away from the center, you have to sort of work twice as hard to um, explain why it's mm. useful to think about this, or why your experience matters, or why your insights somehow are helpful from the perspective of the center. Dave, do you do you lots and lots of different things to say there and um, at, at the risk of you know slightly outing myself as like I'm not that big a fan of Budget. Like I, I think like <laughs> loads and loads of problems with his work not just in terms of the you know particular maybe we call it romantic or sentimental um, views around different uh, social classes 
um, understandings of, of culture, but you know, his approach to gender is is basically like a catastrophic sort of you know car crash really <laughs> in in terms of thinking about gender relations. And this is you know th- this has been well critiqued and um, that you know there are various sort of books. Yeah, there was and, and because we're still because we're still speaking to to students. I think it might be helpful to say something about this. So Bourdieu actually sort of toward the end of his career, I think. Even in 2001, I think he published a book finally on gender, which he called Masculine Domination. Oh, yeah. That's in the, in the was, documentary. Was, yeah. And it was really <laughs> sort of rather toward the end after having covered everything. So then, and it's actually by Bourdieu standards, a remarkably thin book. So it's a very slim volume where he sort of tries to explain uh, gender inequalities uh, quickly um, without any sort of attention to what has been done in gender studies. Uh, sort of really without much in the way of actual empirical research, but sort of off the cuff theorizing from his own experience. And he wasn't, well, obviously he wasn't very well positioned to talk about gender relations from where he were. So everything taken together, that's that was a bit of a, probably somebody should have stopped him. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the kind of limits of podcasts is uh, you can't see like how, I was sort of cringing along with those those descriptions, you, you know. But yeah, I like, and and this is it's it's always the the kind of the trouble with these with these big you know sort of uh, names that particularly when they have you know really like um, massive sort of sort of outputs, uh, you can kind of go go hunting for particular things, and then you run into like wow, that was quite bad or whatever. Um, and and in that sense, yeah, I mean it it is tricky. And again, some of this is driven methodologically. Um, thinking about the UK, there's been quite a long-running struggle in the UK to think about our national set of cultural statistics about what um, counts as culture and what doesn't, which is related to the funding system. And you know, it's quite reasonable for uh, government funders to want to know well how many people are using the things we're paying for, and you know well, we don't need to study the things we're not paying for and and these kind of things. So, you know, there is that sort of uh, tendency. But I think maybe you're being a little, like a little bit too harsh in terms of that lost uh, sense of um, either the ethnographic or at least the kind of the understanding of the everyday um, cultural practices, not just in in class terms, but more broadly um, in terms of different social groups um i i do at least in the uk still encounter quite a lot of that at precisely the intersection actually of sociology and uh, cultural and cultural media studies. studies and actually i want to get on to the like the final question of this segment is about how so as a as a sociologist that studies inequality uh and culture um what is your position in actually um, going beyond explaining these inequalities and also trying to reduce these inequalities? So, do you have to um, do you have to stand on the barricades? Do you have to storm the Bastille, so to say? Um, how much should you be concerned about policy making, or how much should you just be concerned about well writing it all up, speaking about it in nice podcasts like this one? 
uh, and then just hoping that the right ears hear it and the right ears uh, uh, and the right people do something with it. So I think both of you have a slightly, maybe a slightly different viewpoint on this. I was also wondering. So my answer to this is that I see that I see myself as uh, well. I don't know. It's a big word, but like a public sociologist or an educator. So I think ever since I started doing this. Um, I, I have tried to speak to broader publics uh, and I, I think one of the big tasks and also one of the enjoyable things of what I do is sort of explaining the things I've found uh, of, of how very sort of mundane cultural practices and cultural tastes actually can have a very big role in perpetuating very big uh, social divides and social inequalities. Uh, and I think this is I think this is one of the things that as social scientists that we can give to other people to make people aware of how social life functions and how inequalities work and how you perpetuate them even if you don't want to. Uh, so for instance, so if, if ever since my so my PhD was on joke telling, so that might sound like a lot of you know fun and games and. Uh, but it actually was about class, and I've spent so I've spent many many hours explaining to people how what they think is funny, what they believe to be purely individually um, uh, their own deepest sense of humor is actually very much shaped by their own social position. And this has this telling people this has a tendency to make them very very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I, I think I this this so creating these uncomfortable moments. I think is one of the very important things that we can do, uh, because so as we saw in the episode on on inequality, so one of the things that drives uh, that drives inequality beyond a certain point is that when people don't meet other people and people of other social backgrounds, that they become less and less aware of these inequalities and they come to believe that you know their own social position is all their own doing, which is Jonathan Mace's work. I think this is something that we see everywhere that people are really not aware of how not the other half, but the other, I know, 10% in various sections uh, of the world live. Uh, and I think showing people, making them aware of this is probably, should be a beginning of, of insight. So in a sense, I see the role of social scientists as, as pedagogical, almost, or as sort of... Uh, telling people also uncomfortable truth. And I think a podcast would, is a nice way of doing this. There are other ways uh, of doing sociology. So there are more activist colleagues. And I think that is also a very valid implication of what we do. Uh, there are also people who don't want to know anything about this and just want to, you know, become very good at specific methods or understand um, patterns in large data sets, which is... Which I think is also legitimate. I think it's also, I mean, it's also a team team project. Dave, how do you look at that, at this? Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like um, the idea of, of sociology as a team sport, really. Um, and that's not just because of, like, my obsession with football, um, but, but also because um, I think for a lot of the work that I do, I, I should probably say from the outset, I'm like a total sellout. Um, I do like loads of like policy related stuff um, for governments that, you know, I really strongly disagree with about everything. Um, and just to, just to, to kind of pick up that team sport point, um, you know, the stuff I do, I'm 
completely dependent on people who are really, really interested in just finding patterns in sets of data, whether that's survey data or whether it's like, you know, new forms of big data, like, you know, information about who is buying tickets in, you know, particular places and particular art forms. And also uh, my work is dependent on people who are activists building either you know, alternative uh, institutions who are campaigning for changes in um, regulations or laws um, who are, you know, actively trying to get, um, you know, particular individuals or organisations, um, you know, removed from fields. You know, my, my work depends on, um, on those individuals and those communities quite a lot. A lot of what I do... Um, in, is involved in like what was you know committee meetings but but now is, is sitting on zoom in comparatively kind of small uh group settings with um people who are sort of puzzling over you know what sort of policy framework should we use for our organization to uh maybe you know change the um ultimately to change say the percentage of women who are on our board or something like this. But in order to answer those questions where organizations have a kind of, oh, just tell us what to do, you know, just tell us what to do, you need these broader kind of sociological insights because it allows you to say, actually, if you just try, you know, um, and say, well, you know, we'll just interview some women and uh, if they don't get the jobs, that's not really anything to do with us. It's we, we tried. And then if, you know, you hire, but you don't have any conception of what it's like to go into a space where you're like a single individual who is different to everybody else in the room and why that might be alienating and, you, you know, why um, you, your organization might need to do more than just say, well, we hired this one person. Is that not enough? It, you know, these kind of things, all of which are, I think depend to a lesser or, or greater extent on um, whether it's, you know, academic research um, or whether it's, you know, synthesizing um, the, the kind of lived experiences of, of individuals to make uh, these cases clearer. But I still think at the same time, this is part of the kind of academic sociological project, really. Uh, and the kind of like holding up a mirror can be useful when you encounter, and this is, this is going to be my last point, when you encounter, um, I, I guess, the sort of the limits of raising awareness. And it's been really interesting reflecting on, um, I guess, you know, almost a decade, but certainly sort of uh, six or seven years in this space in the UK, hearing sociological analysis given back to myself and my colleagues to justify inequalities, you know, as a way of kind of saying, yeah, we understand what the patterns are in the labor force or what the patterns are in the audience. We're aware of this, um, but we're going to offer you now essentially our understandings of these problems as an excuse for why we can't do anything. Because if you're telling us the problems are to do with the education system, to do with the welfare system, to do with how society is organized, then how can I as a television commissioner or uh, an arts funder or someone who is hiring in the design agency, how can I change any of these broad social structural problems? 
And I guess, you know, the kind of the question of what the sociologist does is a dynamic one. And again, this has come through almost every episode of the podcast. Inequalities are dynamic. They're not stuck forever. You know, there's the possibility of challenging and changing them. But equally, there's the possibility of, you know, those, uh, whether it's individuals or groups or structures, changing to uphold the kinds of inequalities that we're trying to, uh, to change. One of the things, I'm not sure if holding up a mirror is is just what I meant. I think really what I mean is also m making people think and making people aware. Mm. Uh, and making people think actually actually fits much better with what Dave just said because that's actually a way of sort of keeping people sort of observant even when when social patterns change, and I think that is something slightly different. And then of course the the legitimation, so the sort of interaction with policy sometimes can be extremely painful and really blow up in your face. And there is one example of about ten years ago when we had the. Um, a, a government with the with the populist right wing party, and then the secretary of culture in the Netherlands was a sociologist actually, uh, and he also was uh, he he abolished uh, or severely cut many of much of the budget for culture and the arts with the claim that it's elitist, and this was actually I mean there there very plausible ways which, you know, having studied sociology, you can make the argument that, you know, funding the high arts is a way of increasing inequality and that's why you should stop. So actually with sort of with a Bourdieuian twist, but in a really not the way that we intended to be. And I think that has been really devastating for the cultural. Yes. Your knowledge can be picked up in ways that you really didn't want it to happen. And that can um. be... Right, so we have one final part. And I yeah, so in this second part, we talk about the podcast in itself. Um, and really, we, some of the themes that I would like to discuss, we already sort of already came along. Um, so the question is, where do we go from here with the podcast as an academic platform? Uh, so this is really a little bit of a meta thing where sociologists of culture are looking at their own culture, cultural production and then talking about it and how it can serve themselves. So this is really meta, meta, And also meta. a podcast thing, right? So podcast also, makers talking about their own podcast, podcast with other podcast makers. Which is, <laughs> this is, I would like to start with the question about the teaching because uh, I, you use this for teaching. I'm not sure whether you did as well already, Dave. Um, but I was wondering how, how, what were the benefits in relation to normal teaching so of course it's a product of a pandemic time um of a pandemic era but i was wondering if you gained new insights on how we normally do teaching to in comparison to a podcast i use this basically as the sort of explaining lecturing part of an ma course uh so students came to a zoom meeting and before that they were expected to have listened to the podcast um so i I think it works well for a number of reasons. I mean, specifically as a replacement of Zoom teaching, it's it's uh, obviously superior. But also, I think one of the one of the things that that work well, as my students told me, is that it's actually it helps retention. Uh, so they said what happens when they have to read academic articles is that they sort of they read it but they forget it. Uh, and then with the podcast, they actually told me that five or six weeks after they still remembered. Uh, so I think one of the real problems, of course, is that that in in graduate teaching we use academic papers and academic articles are really not a very good medium for teaching. I mean, they are. I mean, they're. I, it's just 
in itself, it's not a particularly agreeable, nice genre, I would say. I mean, I see, I see why it works and what it's for, but it's a very specialized, strange genre that is really for communication between experts. And it works that way, and it's and I think I think everybody who teaches in university knows that it's it takes a lot of work to make make academic articles speak to students, you know, because you have I mean the, the the part that they like will be in the second half, so they have to sort of fight their way through an introduction and a very boring theory section, and then lots of data, and then they get to the part that they like, and it's going to be very dense. And by um, that point, they're already exhausted. And by that point, and they, so, <laughs> yeah. So, but so actually, so so I think so it helped for retention. And I think they also really, really appreciated. Uh, so as I said, the enthusiasm. So what you get when academics actually talk about their work rather than write it up, you will see that you you will hear the love and the 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 pleasure and the joy and the curiosity and the interest. So it's a way of getting across in much better ways than in in the written text and especially the text that we give them. Um, why people do research and what you find and why this matters and why it's relevant. So it's just a much better way to share research findings and insights with students. Uh, specifically when, pe when people talk to them, but specifically when people who have done the research talk to the student here, I think it just worked very well. And the conversation bit specifically uh, seems to be much easier to listen to than just one person talking. Yeah, I think that's an interesting insight, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly reassured and inspired by that. Um, so this semester, I, I haven't actually been teaching uh, because I, I've been involved in this big uh, project on the impact of COVID on uh, the cultural sector in, in, in the UK uh, and, and a couple of other um, policy projects. And my teaching is, is slightly sort of difference anyway because um i teach these um history of art and, and fine art uh students um but the podcast has also inspired me to to kind of go off and do my own sort of mini short interviews with people who've written the papers that normally i'd set each week mm. uh you know just kind of uh 15 minutes could you just talk me through the paper? Why were you interested? What what did you want to do? So, on a personal point of view, the like the act of doing a podcast has been uh, quite inspiring. But also, actually, the focus on taking what otherwise we'd you know refer to as like the weekly reading uh, for the students and trying to make it come alive by talking to the authors, um, you know, is is something that I've been uh, been trying to sort of replicate a bit as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm delighted to hear that the the students have been interested and been engaged with it, um, but it's also been uh, quite quite inspiring too. Yeah, I think that that brings me to the second point because how much, how can a podcast like this or like doing interviews or conversations like this really foster and a different way of doing a transnational academic community? So of course, because of COVID, the transnational academic community of sociologists is sort of. Well, they still exist, but everyone is isolated in their own homes. And I was wondering, also, does it have benefits in knowledge sharing and knowledge exchange between authors and sociologists? Definitely. I think I think one of the reasons that so many people have been willing to join the podcast is that I think academics actually miss the exchange. I think we've been we've been sort of joking about how academia can be sort of nasty and unpleasant, but I think for many people it's also it's a it's a place they really feel at home in and that that um that they really miss. 
uh, because it is it is a, a network and a community where you can feel very much part of an ongoing conversation and where, where it can be really nice to see the same people every year in yet another conference. So there is also, a, there, I mean, the, the academic community is a real thing and it's so... It is. I, I am a bit sentimental about that, I must say, because I really think that's also a very precious and valuable thing that we need to sort of cherish and care for, uh, because because it's this academic community that makes makes um, thinking possible in a way. So back to the team business, it doesn't mean that we all have to write papers with you know fifteen people or fifteen names above it, but it means that we you know, we share ideas and we test them out. And you do this with others, and this is why, why the whole thing works. And I've I've been really sort of pleased to see that that this podcast, not only the conversations that we've been having, also the conversations that you've been having, and Julian and the other people have been presenting, but also that it has been picked up by so many people. Also, you know, apparently, sort of miss or long for this sharing of ideas. I think. Have, you know, being able to sort of keep this alive in time of pandemic makes me, well, I know, as I said, a bit sentimental, but also optimistic. I, I share that um, that sentiment actually, and, and um, I've remarked to a few people this year um, that you know that there will be maybe in about eighteen months' time, or maybe two years, there'll be a moment where all of the really interesting stuff that would happen because of these conversations isn't there. And all of the sort of, you know, fascinating research possibilities that come from the network nature of, of the contemporary profession is, is, is lost really. Um, and that, you know, is a shame and, and hopefully uh, the, not just the podcast, but I guess the kind of, the act of having to think about, you know, who would we speak to, how do we organise it, you know, what would be an interesting paper and stuff like that will will contribute to that and the building of, of a network. Yeah, I think these are interesting reflections. So I have a final question before we move to the final wrapping up part of this podcast. And the last question is how, what do we think? So we talked about how these how this podcast can serve as a tool for teaching and also as a tool for the transnational academic community. So I was wondering how the podcast can serve for knowledge dissemination more widely beyond the academic community. So have you heard back from someone outside the academic bubble, so outside, also not, student, not a student, about this podcast that really surprised you? Um, or did you share it with people outside, the, outside that bubble? Or has this been just <laughs> this bubble and that's it? And do you think it has the potential to uh, actually... Uh, reach people beyond that bubble i mean it, it's got a lot more potential than asking people to read an academic paper um, which <laughs> uh when when i was like early in my career um i would get particularly on social media i would get involved in these conversations about you know what's the kind of the shape of the audience for the arts or whatever and i'd say things like oh you should read this you know uh, culture class distinction book that was written by these British sociologists in the mid noughties and it costs you know a hundred pounds in hardback <laughs> and you will have no idea what you're talking about because it's a very specialized book that's you know a, a dialogue with you know various kind of European Australian and American researchers and, and all this kind of stuff and and obviously like and this is you know a family podcast so I'll keep it clean but you know being told in quite robust terms 
uh, to go away. Um, and my, you know, sort of like demands for, for reading uh, weren't welcome. Uh, was was a really important formative experience. And, you know, these kind of podcasts, I think, are crucial in terms of that, whether we'd call it like exchange or translation or engagement or, or whatever. Um, I think particularly um, if they're part of a, of a broader suite of things. So, you know, thinking in terms of um, obviously the centre that, you know, is hosting a podcast, has got a website and... You know, thinking in terms of what it's going to do next with, you know, a blog series or, you know, individual papers. It's got a social media presence and stuff like that. I think all of those things together are really important. I think I think it has potential. I, I so we've I feel we've really been experimenting with the form. Um so we need to so, so we are going to continue the podcast. Uh, but that also means that probably we need to think of now it's really targeting students, starting with the reading, some the assignments. So to make it work for wider audiences, I think we will go and th- have a think about uh, how to change this a little bit, how to speak to slightly broader audience audiences without losing the sort of depth Um so I think there there is potential right now. I think it's mostly for students and academics, which I think already is uh, a bigger audience than than uh, most of my papers have had, especially in such a short <laughs> time frame. Uh, so I mean, if you look at the sort of downloads and 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 citations, even for really well cited papers, I mean, it's really compared with the sort of hits that the podcasts have had. So. The, clearly, there is a demand. Uh, right now, I'm not sure yet if it will work outside um, sort of university audiences broadly defined. Um, so, yeah, I think there's different ways you can make this more engaging for a wider audience, but I definitely think there's potential too. And <laughs> I'm going to wrap up now. <laughs> uh, so we are wrapping up. Uh, and uh, so this podcast was uh, about depression. Where do we go from here? Um, and both in how we will continue the study of culture and inequality and where do we go from here with the podcast. It was a little bit, in my view, a bittersweet uh, um, episode in the sense that we first castigated ourselves for all the blind spots and the things that we are missing and the biases and the things that we need to do better as sociologists and then we're very happier about ourselves with the uh, with the podcast itself. Um, so I have a final question for you both is... Um, what can't you let go of this week? So, what do you? What will you keep thinking about? Uh, what uh, after this podcast episode and uh, over the festive period? How would you reflect on this episode, perhaps in podcast series more generally? So, so in in thirty seconds or so, in a few sentences. Always do the reading. That that's that really <laughs> um, But then also, I, I guess the range of possibilities. Um, that we've talked about, you know, even just in terms of thinking about um, an immediate reaction of what was missing, what would you like to hear more about? We laid out three or four 10-year research agendas straight away. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's that kind of sense which can be frustrating at times, which is, you know, the academic project is never finished and there's always more and stuff like that. But equally, it means that there's loads of exciting possibilities for where... Um, study of culture and inequality could go next. Yeah, Linda. Yeah, so so if anything, this conversation leaves me optimistic 
I think it's been a, a really weird year. And I think many of us, including me, have the sense of many things haven't worked out and all the plans that you had and this somehow. But this podcast actually makes me feel, you know, that something really unexpected happened that that has worked out fine and that has potential and that also, you know, has been a project that seemed meaningful. Uh, and I think that's that's a, that's a good way to, to end this uh, this annoying year. Um, <laughs> and I think it's also, I think also in this conversation, I have a sense of indeed that this is also, it somehow opens up many new agendas uh, that maybe I wouldn't have thought about in this way if it hadn't been for the podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, grateful that that this podcast happened. Festive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. optimistic and grateful. That's <laughs> yeah. a little bit festive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was the final episode of the season of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Uh, we will return with new episodes at a later stage. We still don't know when. We would like to thank you all for listening. We would also like to thank all of our guests, and those were well today, uh, Giselinde Kuipers and Dave O'Brien who presented different episodes as well. Julian Schaap in earlier episodes, who also presented uh, some episodes. Then we have uh, Philippa Chong, Jennifer Lina, Laurie Heinkrinet, Simone Variale, Ju uh, Joe Haynes, Dieter van der Broeks, Simon Stewart, Bruno Cousin, Sebastian Chauvin, Joost Aude Groeninger, Jeroen van der Wal, Predrak Stevicianin, Jan Gau, Jonathan Meis, and Magna Flemmen. I'm sorry if I left out all your uh, academic titles, but that would have been too many doctors, doctor, doctor, professor, professor, professors. <laughs> so I just did it this very Dutch egalitarian way. Um, I would also like to thank Timothy Doud for the theme song and Iris Verhuls Donk for her initial editing help in the first two episodes. There's also a big thank you to the European Center for the Study of Culture and Inequality, who basically made this all possible with its not only its financial support, but also its substantial uh, support. You can find the entire podcast and, uh, and uh, instructions for how to use it in education at www.eucci.eu. Um, I would also like to thank, um, and I also speak for Gieselinde here, the Center for Sociological Research at uh, the Catholic University of Leuven. Uh, my name is Luc Brands, and thank you for listening, and have a wonderful end of this year.